Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 386. Today is Sunday the 30th of August 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Ton Doby. Ton is an expert in developing software companies. He's the founder of the boutique Value Inspiration Agency, a keynote speaker, podcaster, and the author of the book, The Remarkable Effect. In this conversation with Tan, we discuss how and why he wrote his book, what it takes to build a successful software company, where, per Tan, all companies are going to become at least in part a software company, and how to become a remarkable company. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Hello, Ton Dobe. Great to have you on the show. Um, we connected with numerous things in common, including the fact that you liked podcasting and are a podcaster, and you're also, amongst other things, uh, author of The Remarkable Effect, which has come out in this remarkable time of the pandemic. So in your own words, how would you like to describe yourself? <laughs> how, do I, how would I like to describe myself? Energetic, um, visionary, um, evangelist. And an expert in developing software companies. Well, that's what I've been all my life, yeah. Um, so prior, prior to uh, doing what you're doing now, tell us a little bit about your background. A very long story, but I've been my entire life in the, in the business software industry. And I've been in sales, I've been in marketing, I've been in product management, product marketing. And at the, at the far end of my career at, at my, the company in the Netherlands, Unit 4, I was chief evangelist. So um, that's where the evangelism part comes in. Always about what's next for the future. And um, two and a half years ago, I started my own company, a Value Inspiration. And my tagline when I started the company was, I'll help you reimagine what can be to become remarkable as a software business. And that's where I realized in order to live up to that, I need to, um, I need to figure out like what is remarkable and what are the, the, the things that people talk about in the business software industry. So that's how I started my podcast. And after I'd done about 50 or 60 or so, someone came to me, one of my guests, and said, you need to write, write a book about it. And that became yeah, the spark to, uh, to the remarkable effect as it stands today. I do like the idea of reimagine. Maybe it's a Tom Peters line, but it, you, you, as you write in your book, you, you really do instruct and inform and inspire through the way you tell your story to reimagine what you're doing. So... I couldn't help but think that you might have also been inspired by uh, Goldratt's The Goal. Is that, did you have that as a reference point is, is going through this or, because no. you, you, I mean, just for the people who don't know, you write the book very much like a story. It is. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's just, you know, it's a whole journey. It's one journey. And, exactly. and you're, you're in and out, dipping in and out. And you, you really feel that and you make it, you, you know, you got little sort of casual, you know, elements like, you know, I'll get a coffee now and then you're back and then you're talking serious in and out. So tell me. The, um, you're completely right. And I didn't have that book as a reference, although it has been 
some people mentioned that. Uh, one of my customers uh, from the Netherlands, CEO, mentioned that to me, and I, I, a couple of other people as well. So I still need to read that book, by the way, um, <laughs> just to, to prove also that it wasn't a reference because I haven't, I wasn't even aware of it because it's already. I think it's a book from the nineties, right? Oh, it's from no, even before that. I think. I mean, oh. I, I mean, I studied it at business school, so and I went, yeah. I, I went in nineteen ninety three, so. Yeah. It was surely before that. Well, if it might have been before, you know, written just before. But anyway, it's a, it's a really great uh, vehicle for explaining your story. True. And I, I was wondering about your character, Rob. Did you? How did you come about him? Did you mirror him or think of him as a, an individual that you've had in your past, or did you entirely yeah. fictionalize him? It it is fiction. Because at the end, that person, well, that person in that journey doesn't exist. The journey exists because I did the journey myself. Um, but I, I, while writing the book and getting every all the concepts across, uh, and kind of in the, in the start when I uh, when I was working with my coach to come up with how, what's the flow going to be, and the flow was going to be the journey uh, to this event in, in in Portugal, the the big wave event that I use as a as a metaphor. Um, I started to look into, okay, uh, who needs that person to be? And it needed to be a CEO of a software company because that's the discussion uh, that was the, the relevance to the discussion. And I took the person, not literally, but the CEO of one of my customers in Portugal. Right. And he sort of so, gave you some inspiration about how exactly. he would be, yeah. of course. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, exactly. you know, this, it's, that's the, of, of course, it's fictional, but it, it really it allows you to think through your, you know, the eyes of somebody else and you're presenting sure. it. So I, Oh, that was really lovely. The the imagery and the the your whole passion around surfing, I'm imagining, is entirely true. True. So, what that's another thing that makes this book particularly interesting because you're you're investing in it uh, an element of personal passion. So often when we get into these books, the dryness of them, you know, let's say without trying to be nasty, you know, software business, well, it, it's. It, it might be dry, but you really wet it by bringing in the surfing analogies. I don't know if you've ever come across a chap called Joël de René, who's a French uh, philosopher, writer, brilliant man. And uh, he's, he's around about 80 years old. I hope I'm not <laughs> dissing him, but he's definitely older than I am. And uh, he's, a, he's a passionate surfer as well. But he, he talks about having learned to surf when he was younger and now surfing on the internet uh, yeah. in today's world. Yeah. Where you go with it is more about that sort of catching the wave and, and the whole imagery of, of, of the force of it and not being underneath it. Tell, talk us through how you experience surfing. and Because it sounds like a very dangerous sport. Well, I mean, the, the, the metaphors that I'm using in my book are absolutely, they're killing not even dangerous. Now, I mean, I've been a surfer all my life. Um, first of all, windsurfing, and later on, uh, I do I do a lot of pedal boarding. I've got my wave boards and I've got my my race boards. Um, so I've got this passion for that. But I'm living on the middle uh, the Mediterranean Sea, and there's there's hardly any wave. Uh, what I got, what I am passionate about, is where you know the the spots in the world where there are these extreme waves, and one of these spots is Nazaré in, in Portugal. So when my coach, uh, when I was working with my coach to write a book, she said, do you have a passion for something? Do you have a hobby that you can blend into the book? And I said, well, that needs to be surfing then. And um, one thing that I could use as a metaphor is 
big wave surfing because that the whole analogy around the big wave uh, it can you can link up everything to it strategic segmentation positioning on the wave timing uh pre preparation um yeah picking your picking your moments uh creating them picking the momentum uh i mean there's so many concepts that i that i want to get across in my book uh, that i could link back to uh, to that sport so that that became yeah the the red line through the book as I as I take my journey to that spot. Sure. So I I really dug that. Um, when it comes to surfing, so I'm I'm sort of an I'm I've, I've I've managed to get up on a surfboard. When when you think of surfing, when I think of surfing, sorry, I I think of the next wave, because you know basically I don't survive the first one. And, and then it's just about sort of not being crushed by the next one that's coming in or, you know, going back for the next one. So there's a sort of an iterative process to it. And, and it led me to think about the cycle of capitalism. So I think of, you know, capturing a wave and then let's say the first wave was the fax machine. Then the second wave might have been the mobile, the yeah. third wave or whatever. So is that also part of it for you? Sure. Absolutely. It is about, it's about uh, like which which wave do you want to ride? Do you want to ride the the busy wave where everybody's on there and you're part of many many vendors uh, and you have to find and, and fight for your spot or do you pick your your niche? For example, big the big wave surfing and want to be in, in an area where you actually can be the best because the number of players is less. Um, it the, the story goes about having a sensing what's coming, sensing the, 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 the trends and knowing how to start combining them because then you can start to combine multiple um, forces that create a larger wave. And that's exactly also the analogy I use for, for Nazare because that's exactly happening there. There's multiple canyons coming together there, creating almost two waves coming together into one. Right. Um, and that goes into, yeah, uh, it, it perfectly f aligns with what you were talking about. The, um, there are waves in technology and there is, there's waves of new technology coming to the market uh, that are disruptive and that can, that beca can become your breakthrough moment. And it's the keeping th an eye for that. The other thing that you, the one, I mean, you have many stories in the book. You, you, you yeah. bring in lots of different examples. I think it was in South Africa where this chap decided, or a woman, I can't remember, uh, decided to go after not the beaten path. It exactly. was a smaller segment where there yeah. was less competition, where the value could be more apparent. And I sure. think that's an interesting example. So, so many companies seem to want to go after the big thing. Uh, let's say even if they start small, they, ne they necessarily keep on wanting to grow. And it feels like that the only thing that they're interested in is the growth. Yeah. And then the, for me, it feels like they lose why they're doing they their identity isn't firmly anchored and then there's no real rhyme or reason to seeking the next wave it's just whichever big wave it is and and sort of it's more like a, it's a seeking pleasure seeking money but not seeking purpose that's my yeah. feeling what do you think well I completely agree with that and i see two camps i see a camp and i write in my book about that part uh, i write about Play, are you there? Is the mindset play to win or is it play not to lose? Um, 
and I mean, I need to explain play to win because it's not winning it at every, uh, how do you say that, every cost? At all costs. At, at, at all, all costs, cost. yeah, exactly. Because it's, it's what Simon Sinek is talking about with the, are you in the infinite game? Are you in there for the long run? And you know, if you do that, then it's about the, the value what you want to deliver for your customer and making sure that that value is always at the, at the level where they will keep talking about it. That's why the book is called The Remarkable Effect because it, you need to create things that, that are worth making a remark about. It's a very simple concept, but at the end it's pretty hard to do if, if you have the wrong mindset because with a different mindset, um, the one, for example, play not to lose, that's more, far, far more about taking shortcuts. It's about the short term, like making the next quarter, making the, the, the target of the year, where it's much more about pleasing the, um, the stakeholders and the shareholders rather than your customer. And it actually can flip. I mean, one of the, the things that I've, for example, seen in the company I used to work for prior to going public, that was much more about customer value, um, the long term, uh, you could do what you want because you were owner of your company and and you could make the decisions with that mindset. The moment you go, for example, public or you become part of private equity, someone else owns your company. And the only reason why they're in there is return. And in the stock market is every quarter, beat the profits, beat the profits. And you know whether you like it or not, that determines wh where you're going with your company. It's amazing. Um, I, I, I so agree with you, Tom. Because in, in my, my new book, I, uh, the second chapter, I, I stuck in and wanted it to be there. And it's about governance. And it's, it's almost like when you're a publicly traded company or at worse, run by a, owned by a private equity company, the idea of purpose and planet and people, it just doesn't pay off as far as they're yeah. concerned. And so... I'm not going to blame them because that's what their model is. At some level, we need to make it somehow. It has to be profitable. True. And they're in and there it, for three, four, five years. That's yeah. that long term. Then they're out. And they need to make a multiple. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're, when you're working with companies, I mean, the guy, you know, some uh, person comes to you and says, hey, Tony, I, I really want you to help me. I've got a software company. This is idea. And really, I want to flip it in three years. How does that change the conversation as opposed to build it out lifestyle, privately owned, I want to keep my company? When they say that they're just interested in selling it in three years' time at the highest multiple possible. It doesn't have to bite each other. I actually believe that the moment you are, that, that you're there and doing the right things for your customer, solving a, a valuable problem that is high on their agenda and do that in a way that exceeds their expectation, the moment you do that, then that will make the sales process shorter. It will allow you to win more. It will allow you to, to, to win at a, higher, at a higher price. So everything that comes to you, it's, it, it, at the end, it's, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's easier. Um, and then the value will come to you in, I would say, uh, amounts that you could not plan for in the past. I mean, the trick is, or the challenge, I, the way I see it, is that the organic approach, let's say just believing on word of mouth as, to, as opposed to buying loads of keywords. So the loads of keywords can get you traction, you spend, you make, exactly. but the just relying on doing good by your customers, 
and then relying on them to talk about you. It, it is yeah. no automatic and short-term process. To no, that. but I mean, marketing doesn't have to be a dirty word. And marketing has, has, has kind of achieved a bad name just because of that spamming. And, and just thinking, okay, it works like this. If I have a budget and I can get a thousand eyeballs or 10,000 eyeballs, and I know that the conversion is going to be 1%, then it's just a money game. Well, I mean, that's exactly what you get. Uh, it doesn't mean that what's coming in and what is downloading your, and who is downloading your white paper, that is the lead. First of all, there's a lot of waste in, the, in, that whole, uh, in that whole funnel. So sales will be extremely inefficient. And at the end, it will be a game whereby it's not clear for the customer what the value is. And, and you end up in a, in a price fighters game. And yeah. discount becomes the answer. So that nobody wins with that. Um, I, I'm part of a group from, uh, that, is, that is led by Bernard Ajiwa, the writer of many books around storytelling. And uh, one of the things he recently said in one of her posts on the, on the platform was, if you remove the word marketing from your voc vocabulary and you replace it with a helpful conversation, hmm. everything will change. And that's what it's about, you know? A helpful conversation, how can I help you? How can I help you with, with solving your problem? If marketing would understand that, then we would get a lot further uh, than we are today. Well, it might be a little bit of a red herring, but that makes me feel, and, and, yeah. and you who attended uh, my podcast festival, that actually it would make the whole world a better place if we could remember the art of conversation. And exactly. And it's, it, it seems remarkable, right? That there's a sort of a one-wayness to the way society is devolving yeah. and, and how companies are selling. They just push, 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 no listening, no opportunity to have a to and fro. Exactly. That's true. I mean, you, you, you use the word remarkable already. It's, uh, it's funny that that is, if you do that, that it's so unique that people even start talking about it. What happened to me yesterday? <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that's interesting is at one point you mentioned that essentially all companies will become software companies. It's, at yeah. some level, there's a suggestion that no matter what you are, you're going to get into software. And uh, so I was thinking about L'Oreal with selling shampoos, but maybe for those who aren't so close to the business as you are, what is special about the software industry to work Right in it, working in, in with you know so many coders, so much relying on SaaS and, and this sort of vaporware, these these other concepts. How how is software different than other industries that I'm more familiar with? Good question. Um, at the end, of course, it's technology driven, and I'm, what I see, of course, is uh, there's a lot there's a lot out there. You're talking about vaporware, a lot out there where by companies use technology, create technology, and then start searching for the problem. Um, <laughs> I've, got, I've, is, got a, I've, got, I've got a product. Well, yeah, you got a product, but then you got no audience. Um, at the end, it's like, okay, why, why do we have shampoo? It solves a problem of whatever, fat hair, or it solves a problem of, um, how do you say it, dandruff? Um, yep, I mean, dandruff. There's all, all these type of things. So it starts with the problem, and then you solve it with, with combining something and then selling that as a package. Um, that's, that's, of course, that's how the software industry needs to work as well. But sometimes you get too excited with, with all the techniques that we have available these days. 
I mean, if you go back 20, 30 years ago, there was DOS and there was Windows, and now we got clouds. And I mean, cloud in itself is like, it's just the delivery mechanism, but what we get with cloud is all this data, all this, compu all this compute power, all the technologies that, that can crunch that and, and make something useful out of the data. And with that data, then can, we can start to do things we've never been able to do before. That's where, where there's a mental, a mental click that needs to happen. The things that um, I have observed and uh, like your feedback on it is, first of all, in the development of software, oftentimes the developers, our coders are distributed. At, you know, just to, to use a, an example, they might be in India or yeah. in Romania or Russia. So by definition, you're generally working with a distributed sale, uh, team. And then what I also understand is that in the development cycle, especially when they're distributed, they can work 24 seven in three by eight cycles sure. around the world. And, and that seems to be a, a very, well, it's a very different type of work environment. Does that, is that a fair statement or is that just sort of- No, no, that's absolutely part? true. I mean, that's, uh, first of all, of course, one of the things if the outsourcing part comes often through private equity, because it's much cheaper, <laughs> you can get many more people for less money. I mean, I've been in this, this high to low cost type of movements myself. Um, it doesn't mean that you get worse quality at the end. Of course, you need to ramp up, but you, you're completely right. The moment you have teams in different parts of the world, you can, you can create a machine that's 24 by seven. Do you believe in outsourcing code? Um, yeah, I believe that that can work, and it's. Um, uh, I mean, at the end, it's about what you want to what you what you want to create, and, and of course, sometimes with these innovative ideas, it's also about time to market. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, I'm thinking of IP, and then iterative work. And, and sort of yeah, but I mean, all the techniques are available these days to control that. Right. I mean, this, this whole world has been taking very good care of itself, uh, that, that all of these things can work in distributed teams rather than one person being responsible for everything. So another area that strikes me as, let's say, different is that when you launch a software product, you have this notion of one product, but there's inevitably a V2, V3, V4. You know, it's sort of baked into it, you know, sure. within 0.01 version. It never stops. And, and that feels different. I mean, it, when I was selling shampoos, we, you know, every year we might renovate the formula, you know, because that is good to have new on the packaging. It doesn't feel like new is what you're selling when you update. It's more like correcting, fixing patches, and and of course combination of those things yeah sometimes it's, improving uh, exactly it's there's new there's new things that you add to it there's uh, there's fixes there's stability type things 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 that customers won't even see uh, and it can also be that um, yeah that that's complete uh, aspects of of the whole architecture have changed in order to get to give it much more scale um, when you initially start you. You work towards your first hundred customers, and then the first glitches come. Like technically, nothing wrong with the software, but it, there's performance issues, and then you have to go back and fix that. Yeah, that's that's evolution of software. That's that's where the magic comes in. We're talking about those waves, where a lot of companies 
very often have a hard time to say at some point, okay, now we have to stop because we are hitting a dead end road and we have to go back to the drawing board and do it again. But then there is already so much investment in that, in that product. Right? Sometimes you have to start all over again. And it's that, man, that balance you have to find in order to stay it, relevant. I mean, going to the wave analogy, Tom, it, it, I, I think of catching the right wave and you know, I'm a, you know, just a sheer beginner. And you know, I'd see the wave and, and it would just it would fizzle out before I, you know, as I'm paddling hard, da, 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 trying to get it get through it. And then you you want to have enough of an impetus in the first version to make a wave, if you will, you make a splash anyway. And then you're going to get ready for the next one, and it's going to be a little bit better, and it's yeah. a little higher, a little stronger. That's not right. exactly how it works in terms of the sea, but there's that notion of of having enough in the first one, knowing that they were solid enough. I mean, the example I like to talk about. But to create momentum at the end, that, yeah. that you actually can, can take off. That's right. You have to have enough, right, to you know, yeah. warrant spending the next year. The example I, I, I like to mention is Starling Bank. Because let's say that uh, so in, in, in England, there are about four or five significant digital banks who have managed to get licenses and and of course, the fact that they're digital, they, they are supremely relying on software. And, and whereas you're a bank, you're competing with HSBC and, and these other Santander, these huge, you know, everything banks. And, and you're in their little tight and you come in with a small product. And what I loved about the Starling approach was that they came out with a great small product. They made it bigger by having a network. And then little by little, they added in other functionalities as the requests came in. And I feel like so many people want to make the perfect first product. Yeah. I mean, as in like the big competitive to other banks type of attitude. Yeah. So how do, you, how, do you, yeah, how do you advise and, and help a software developer focus on what's necessary as opposed to wanting to go for the big, the big dream, the, the legacy product? True. That's about fixing, what, what is the problem you're fixing? What is that, that big problem? For example, that, that, that bank you just talked about, they, they fixed a problem that the, the, the traditional banks have never fixed before. Uh, it is about maybe the onboarding. It's about the speed by which you can get a credit card. It's maybe no the, the, <laughs> the, the advice that you get as a, as a consumer about how to do your finance and, and become a better, yeah, more financially responsible, something that banks have never cared about. It, it definitely feels that. And I, and I have to admit, some, I give credit to the CEO, Anne Bowden, because while she comes from a big background in finance, she completely kept the customer's head and, and visual on that the whole yeah. time. And so when I, I, I remember I, I wanted to get a business account and I used, I, I, I applied to Starling and then because I had international business, I also applied to HSBC and I got two business accounts. And well, one, I had the credit card in my hand within two days. And when did the HSBC one arrive? Two months? <laughs> Close. Six weeks. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and you were exaggerating, but you're not, I mean, you were right. And, and so they were, they really They're not organized like that. They're organized yeah. around a transaction. They're organized around their stuff, their governance, their contracts. You have to come to their office 
and what what these new bank new banks are doing they're taking it completely on the opposite side there they're starting from the consumer perspective so another area that is interesting and intriguing to me as i was reading your book is we, we might be doing you might be selling software which basically is people coding you know text and whatever you know and yet there's a whole human element to it so one is the management of a, an engineering team or this is a programmer team the other is the salespeople who are selling software. It's not like they can pull it out and, and, you know, I can show you the smell, make you smell the shampoo, which is, you know, the sort of stuff that we do. This is sort of a concrete element to the element as I show it to you. And then there's a third one, which is customer service. Yeah. Which is such an inevitable, you know, like you said, the onboarding and then the management of the people so that the, the software is no longer just an abstract concept. It's sure. surrounded by flesh and bones. Good point. But, but going back to your point about smelling the shampoo, the way that software is sold in the best possible way is when you start selling the idea, not the product. Mm -hmm. I actually wrote a blog about it yesterday, how pre-sales is typically wasting or actually helping you to lose deals because they, what they do is they demonstrate the software like a harbor tour, like they're training you, where they actually should just use, use the software, know your problem, solve it in 30 seconds, so that you actually get this, this glimpse of, okay, what is today versus what can be? Opening the shampoo, what can be? That's fantastic smell. I want to have it. Um, that's how it's done. And so it all starts again with this whole flow of, okay, what is the big problem? What is the, the big idea behind what we do? What is the big problem we're solving? Coming up with the value proposition around that it's super clear, not only for your customer, but also for your people internally that they are, developing the product because that clarity really really helps to get to get speed and focus how it's marketed and how it's sold and all of that together that's where you create velocity and very well, often there are silos and everybody is running at top speed but all in a different direction yeah and i and i you know we talk you talk about in your book about the salesman's or the salesperson's type of attitude and how they go about it and, and being able to transmit that dream, that idea, the big idea, the big wave that you talk about and making sure they get it because otherwise they can get so easily stuck in the weeds and the details. And if the UX, the user experience isn't a charming experience, then, oh, well, I can get you the education, but surely we shouldn't be focusing on that. No. We should just make it so nice. Exactly. I mean, it needs, the customer needs to see their future in it. How is it going to transform them? Once that promise, once they believe in that, they'll buy it, and then their yeah, professional services can come in and actually deliver upon that aspiration. Where do you want to be in two, three years' time? And check and check from that moment back whether everything they do is helping that customer to get there. Same for support. Very often they don't know what they know that the product is used, but they don't know why it is used. What is the objective why it's used? Um, and that's different from customer to customer. You have these three questions that you go back to on a regular basis, uh, and which one is, uh, what is the value in the offer that you have? The second one is, is, is it an urgent issue? Yeah. And then the third one, which was the most intriguing for me, actually was exceeding expectations and in, in, in execution or delivery. And there are two things that I thought interesting about that particular line or that question, which is expectations, 
So how do you set expectations? Because marketers have a tendency to say, mine is the best thing since sliced bread. And the second How can a market thing, to say that? Well, that's the what they do. They, to say they that. scream. No, but they scream. Look at my, look at me. I'm, yeah, you know, look at me. Yeah. You know, I'm the best. That is, that is a big mistake that many companies talk, uh, do. They, talk, they keep talking about themselves. The only one that can say it's best since sliced bread is the customer. And then the second thing is this notion of delivery. And, and while it is for sure in the code, as in, you know, if it's done well, there's no many bugs or not so many and so on. Like with Starling, for me, the availability of their customer service on call, regularity of their, and the speed with which they come back to me, as opposed to these sort of ridiculously monolithic banks that just haven't got that as part of their delivery. Yeah. It, 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 but it's not, I would say, something that would be natural to software companies to think of the, a customer service as part of their brand and delivery. That's, that's, that, is, that is the beauty at the end where the technology, where the business model is go as, as, as broad as these days because the, move, the world has moved from a license business, everything, everything sold upfront. When that was happening in the past, the, kind of the, 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 the champagne went off at the vendor, at the software vendor's office. Now what is happening, okay, now, now when you sell something and the customer subscribes to, um, to the service, the champagne goes off in the customer office because that's where they start to get, yeah, well, gain the momentum. But the problem and the, the risk and the ownership is on the vendor side. So they need, they need to completely rethink how they do that. And with software as a service at the end, it's also that it's, it's a monthly thing. Customer can say, I don't, I don't uh, renew at the end of the month then you've lost the customer. So the, the, the software industry has had to grow up really, really fast in the last 20 years. Hmm. And some and are still the, in the process. And of course, there, we've also really moved into this sort of subscription model yeah. where you're not buying a disc. And, and that's also made the need, unless you're a sort of a bad actor where you are trying to capture and imprison people in your subscription, True. you're in a constant need to prove your value Exactly. That, well, that, that is why this question is keep coming back. Are what, is, it, is what we are solving valuable to the customer? That's not enough. Is it also urgent? Is it critical to them? Is it, is it an, at the, on the top of their priority list? So are we still solving the right problem? And then like exceeding expectations, not, not compared to your competitor, but in their eyes, in, t in terms of their alternatives. Because they, I mean, we always, too many vendors look at, competition left and right and say well, we're better than them customer couldn't care less because the customer could indeed choose one of the competitors but has many many other options also doing nothing well so, one of you know, one of my favorite questions on that note tone is to say to what extent if you disappeared would it matter yeah yeah uh, and if you're just gobbled up or, you know, your business would be replaceable by exactly. a competitor, then, then you've got a challenge. As you like to say, exactly. it's, it's about being different, not just better. Yeah. And the question around that is like, would your customer be sad if you cease to exist? Yeah. Sometimes they're just, okay, well, another <laughs> round. Get, we'll buy something new. Easy but others will like, they will be, you know, they will be seriously in, in, a, bad, in a bad place. Because they, are, they got so dependent on it. 
One of the examples you talked about, which I absolutely adored and had to look up, was um, the example Good Loop, uh, where uh-huh. the Amy, woman, Amy, Amy, Williams. Yeah, Amy Williams. So tell us about her. I, I just love her journey. And because and, and, meaningfulness is such a powerful word for me. And in the advertising and marketing space, it's kind of a, a rare word. So give us, just talk us through her, because I thought that was, for me, the most interesting example that I read. I think it's at the end of the book. <laughs> so it proves you've read it. So that's good. Now, Amy is, a, is indeed a fascinating entrepreneur, like, like the many other uh, examples that I've got in my book. But she's definitely uh, one, of the, one of my favorites as well. Um, she was working for, for in the advertising industry for a long time, then decided, okay, I, is this what I want to do with my life? Went on a sabbatical, ended up in uh, Argentina, and started to um, to work in a Commodore, which is like a place where where they give where poor people give uh, help even poorer people to get some food. And she said, "Okay, there needs to be a way to support this type of initiative because it's fantastic, uh, and the world needs more of that." So she she started to think about, "Okay, how can I use my skills, my experience, with creating something like that?" And she she started to think about her big idea. How can advertising and the millions and millions of budget that go into advertising help fund initiatives like this or not-for-profit initiatives like, like, like there are many other in the world? So she came up with, the, with the, her company, Goodloops, um, whereby she's working with organizations, and that can be Coca-Cola, it can be all kinds of companies that, that want to do something good. They create an ad. The moment you click on it, you... You, you see immediately that by, 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 listening, by, by listening to the message that they have to get across, you have the ability to fund an X amount of money to a charity of your choice or to a particular charity. So the funding goes directly to, well, to doing good, which is a completely different way of advertising, of course. And you can discuss whether that is ethical, yes or no, but at the end, um, it's much more ethical than, uh, than what advertising is today. And we started on that earlier on with it's spam, it's interruption. Um, yeah, and, and she talks about, as you mentioned it, um, this notion that instead of just buying keywords or the SEO, you, there's, a, there's a, a purpose behind the click, exactly. if you will, yeah. that may be less expensive to repeat. I mean, even though you have to pay for it and such and so forth. Yeah. But there's like, well, oh, I'm going to go back to that. I think, you know, Amazon uses the same type of thing when they have, you know, you, you can choose to purchase through one of their uh, affiliate links yeah. where it's a, they give a donation to somebody. You don't have to, you can just stay with amazon.com or you can use this affiliate, which is a charitable thing. You're like, well, okay, well, I'm not, it's not any more expensive to me, but Hey, what the heck? And you can feel good about that as opposed to, you know, such a a commercial entity. The last thing I wanted to talk about was a remarkable model for me, which I really enjoyed. And it's hard to describe visually. Uh, It's in the book. So encouraging people to read it. But you you talk about the value, the urgency and the expectations. And then you have this triangle in the middle. What's broken? What what are you fixing? The big problem you're fixing. But then you link these to mindsets. Yeah. And, and at first I was thinking, there's no way this is going to be coherent, but it is, it's singularly interesting. And I, I really wanted to commend you for that because 
the, the, so the, the people who are interested mostly in the urgency space are going to be early adopters. Exactly. The people who are interested in the value space are around innovators. And then the people who are looking to exceed expectations, if you will, are more in the early majority. And so this is like this cycle. And it was just like, it was, it was really, it really woke me up. So I'd love for you to explain how you came up with that and, and where, I mean, I really find it's very powerful. Yeah, how did I come out? It's, it's sort of clicked at some point um, mm. because it is about mindset. I mean, the moment you deal with innovators, innovators typically are far less risk averse than the, than the, late, than the early majority who are, mm. they want to wait until at least everybody in the street has, has the same product. And they know it's, it's going to be stable and, and they're not going to be disrupted by it. Um, and they expect a certain level, a completely different level of, uh, of arguments. And that's a fire, it's a perfect audience to sell to if you, if, if you kind of focus on that. But a lot of technology companies think they are selling to the innovators, but possibly not even close to getting uh, to interest the laggards. So it's also about um, know your place and know where you really want to place, about who you're for and who you're not for. That's another concept I talk about in my book. Mm. Too, many, um, too many organizations just target far too wide. Yeah. And it's all about narrowing it down to where is your, where is your ideal customer. Uh, and this if you're a startup, sure. yeah, I mean, there are certain things that you can simply not live up to. I mean, you are, you're a startup, so therefore you don't have uh, a, a run rate of, of, of 15 years behind you. Mm. And something can happen. Yeah, that's a risk. Um, totally. I mean, I think of it like the, the MVP, the minimal viable product. Yeah, true. You're out there. You've got to just get this thing going, get that first wave, get that momentum, and then you can do better. That's or true. you're really going to focus on execution a little bit more profound yeah. because these, these are people who have been around. They're a little bit bigger. You want to service them. You can't screw it up because otherwise it's McKinsey that they go after, you know, that kind of yeah. a feeling. Now, it has to do with two, two aspects of segmentation. On the one inside, the, the, the aspect of demographics is very no, well known by everybody. Uh, we, are, we are focusing on the banking industry, mid-sized companies. So it's all about size and where you are. And, and typically every, that's where it stops. Where real, the real sell happens with people that where you are in line with what they believe, in line with what they care about, in line with what, how you can help them with the frustrations. Um, that's much more in the psychographic uh, arena than it is in the, in, the, in the demographic arena. And a lot of companies forget about it. Well, for six, years I, everybody. for six years, I ran a company which was called The Mindset. And the, the mindset was instead of an I, it was with a Y because it's all about putting the Y. Tone, great to have you on the show. That's uh, really fun. Uh, I hope it's given some stimulus uh, and motivation for people to track you down and find your book. Tell us what's the you. best way to uh, listen to your podcast, get your book and uh, follow you. Well, I mean, at the end, everything is on my website, which is that's valueinspiration.com. Um, my podcast can also be found on iTunes and everywhere they, where they host podcasts and connecting with me, just find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just my name, Tom Dobby. Tom Dobby. All right. And, um, I'll put all that in the show notes, of course. Thanks again, Tom. You. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. 
And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.